Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better, part two. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And so we're doing part two of our Candyman episode. And what a night we've had. <laughs> we just spilled wine all over my carpet. Yes. Well, we're still drinking our Budweiser, too. Let's oh, not forget, yes. we've, we've gone through a traumatic event of cleaning up blood. <laughs> right. Okay, so I do have a true crime for Candyman. It doesn't involve bees or hooks. That's good. Does it involve ghosts? No ghosts. Okay. Some paranoia? Well, you kind of hinted at it in the last episode, so I I believe it involves Cabrina Green. Based yeah. On well, yeah, it involves a project in Chicago. Okay. Not the exact same one, but very similar. Where I'm going to tell you the true story of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Those names sound familiar right. because in Candyman, the person who is murdered through the medicine cabinet. It's Ruthie Ruthie Jean. Jean. Okay. And the woman who lives, who's played by Vanessa Williams. Is his name McCoy. Is Anne-Marie McCoy. Cool. So they took that all and put it into the movie or somewhat real. So so the real story is about a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy. We're going to get back to her. First, I just wanted to, because it was just so interesting to me learning about the Cabrini Green projects and like their history and it just led me down this kind of path. I'm going to give a lot of information. It's not going to be all perfect because it's it's a lot of deep stuff. So there's a lot of better sources to get this information from. But I just wanted to give a little bit of a backstory, especially since we're trying as white people to learn more. Sure. Yeah. So I imagine probably people aren't probably looking to us to educate <laughs> themselves on. But to the extent it comes as a surprise. Yes. Yeah. So if you learn something. Yeah. Or if you already know this and you want to let me know what all I got wrong, that's fine too. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to start right after the Great Depression. We're just going to go back a little bit. So after the Great Depression, Roosevelt developed what he called the New Deal. We won't get all into that, obviously. That was a bunch of federal funding that was designed to try to help the Americans get back on their feet. Still controversial, actually, although undisputedly helped America recover from the Great Depression. Well, so what we're going to talk about in particular is housing. So after the Great Depression, the first thing that started was the Public Works Administration. They first started to build homes for white, middle-class people. Also, some for black families, but they were segregated. So the government was segregating people, segregating areas that formerly were not segregated, Okay. Then the Federal Housing Administration starting to build entire suburbs on the condition that no African Americans were allowed to live there. I don't think I'd ever heard this. So you're saying the federal government, under the auspices of the New Deal, were creating entire... They were segregating people. Okay. Okay, so the houses that the federal, the FHA is what we'll call it, the FHA was building, was for white families. So the government wasn't saying black people can't live here, but it was written in the paperwork that no banks could give loans to black people. Okay. So only white people could receive loans. 
Also, there was a clause when a white family bought a home, they were not allowed to resell it to a black family. There was even a one instance where a white person sold their house to a black family and the white person was tried and actually given jail time. That's amazing, but good. I mean, when I say amazing, I mean horrific and terrible. Right. Just to be clear. <laughs> so the Federal Housing Administration said that if black families bought homes near white families, it would decrease the value of the house and the neighborhood, which I remember hearing this like in the 90s. I, I have a vague remembrance of someone saying something like this. And actually, it's actually the exact opposite, especially back when this started after the Great Depression in the 30s and 40s. Black Americans were more likely to increase the value of neighborhoods because they were willing to pay more money because they had so little options, you know? That's interesting. So in 1926, the Supreme Court ruled that it was not unconstitutional to not sell homes to African Americans. Then it took till 1948 to the Supreme Court to say, oh, wait, that is unconstitutional. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Then in 1954 was when they ruled that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. And then finally, in 1968, they finally ruled that blacks could buy homes in the suburbs. But by this time, because so much time had gone by, 25, 30 years, the price of the houses had gone up so much that the black families who hadn't been allowed to buy homes couldn't afford them. The NPR episode I listened to was with Richard Rothstein, who wrote a book called The Color of Law, which really breaks all of this down in detail about how all of this happened. He goes in, on the cover of his book is actually a map that is redlined, and redlining was the government actually drawing literal red lines around areas where African-Americans lived and telling banks not to insure housing in that area. That's insane. It is insane. Have you read that book? Or? I haven't, but it sounds very good. There's also, he has like an hour interview with him and Ta-Nehisi Coates, so I would like to, yeah, to watch I'm that. I'm kind of embarrassed, I mean, because if, if I knew this, I had forgotten about it. Because this doesn't, I mean, it doesn't surprise me exactly, but I, I'm not familiar with this at all. Well, also, this wasn't just in the South. Uh, in New York City, 85% of the subdivisions that were built in New York City in the 30s and 40s had the FHA requirements of segregation. So this isn't just down in the South. This is a federal issue. Right. Then also, of course, during this time, there, there's the Jim Crow laws that are passed, which Jim Crow is based on a minstrel character. Can you imagine the insult that that, that, that yeah, is? Yeah, I, I listened to that song, The South Podcast. Oh, on that isn't yeah. that interesting? Yes, that was, that was great. And it's infuriating. I loved the episode about Hattie McDaniels. That was a good one. So Hattie McDaniels was the actress who won an Oscar for Gone with the Wind. She played what they call the Mammy character, who is the, the sassy black lady. She, but then we listened to the, the history of it and that she had no other options. You played a slave or you played a maid. Right. And I just recently read an article with Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany Haddish, who can do anything. She does everything. She, she's in every movie. She does stand-up comedy. And she has to have a clause in her paperwork that says her manager will not give her any roles you know, that she deems like a, like a role in the help, for instance. Interesting. You know, and she still has to do that because she still gets those roles given to her constantly. There was also an issue like after World War II, when the veterans came home, they were given, there was this GI Bill that gave 
a lot of incentives to the veterans that came home, one of them being that they were allowed to get an FHA loan. But black American veterans still could not get the FHA loan because that was still in effect. Highways, just like they talk about in Candyman, highways were built around the black communities to, to set segregate. Um, I mean, just giant walls were built. They used the L train, just like they talk about in Chicago. They used the L train to separate anything that they, any large thing that they could use that was an incentive for white people to come live on this side. I mean, it's like that old saying that they're literally live on the the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, it's crazy. And at that time, so at the time after the Great Depression, when the FHA loans were available, both black and white people could afford them. The black people were not allowed to get them. So the white people got in. They bought these home, and this also reverberates all the way through the rest of these people's lives. So back in the 30s, let's say your great-grandfather gets a home, and then he's able to give that home to his kids, and they're able to give that to their home. They build their home equity, and, you know, black American families didn't have that. They only get to build that wealth. Yeah. They didn't get to build that wealth up. That's so interesting because, you know, uh, just yesterday, my friend Scott was talking to me, and I'm not trying to out him about anything, but he's a banker. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was telling me about how a couple, uh, this older couple um, of his, their you know, black clients, took him out to lunch to thank him because he approved their PPP loan, you know, the, the loan for the um, COVID-19 relief to mm-hmm. small businesses. Mm-hmm. Like, we got one at work. Mm-hmm. Um and they were just, and they were so thrilled. And they were talking about how, um, and this is an old couple, how in the, they were going back to the 60s and talking about how that wasn't necessarily a given. They don't take it for granted. I remember kind of thinking like, well, you know, what's that? I mean, I, I, other than just the general racism, I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about. But that makes sense that they have that cultural memory of that not being taken for granted. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just can't even imagine. Like, and you hear your parents talking about it, your grandparents talking about it. Yeah. They should be given the same opportunities. They shouldn't have to be extra thankful. They should have been treated the same. Right, obviously. and in this instance, for the PPP loan, they they were, and, and but it's just that they, you know, Scott's point was they were they kind of, they kind of went out of the way to talk about what how they were genuinely thankful for it, which they shouldn't have to be. You know, they, right. they were just as entitled to it as anybody else. Right, but they've had decades of being oppressed from. Right. This is just one example of the way that Black Americans have been. Yeah oppressed and been sidelined while white americans are able to especially during the great depression everybody probably had somewhat of a level playing field especially if you're in agriculture if you're in farming everybody had lost everything and you just think if everybody had been allowed to build back up at the same time but black americans had to wait decades to be able to be allowed that i'm sure it's they're still facing. Yeah, I mean, I, I say that. I as, mean, it's not uh, a federal law now, but... Well, I mean, I, I talk about Scott's stories as this big positive, but actually there is evidence that many black-owned businesses are not getting the same relief. Hmm. They are not. They weren't first in line for this you know, PVP program right. because they didn't have the same contacts. Um, right. Like, for instance, for, for my firm, like our, our, our office manager had these long-lasting contacts with this particular bank and these relationships, so it was very easy to get in line for this loan. Mm-hmm. And you hear those stories all over the place, where a lot of these much smaller businesses don't have those connections in the communities sometimes, and they weren't able to get to the first line. And right. then once that federal money ran out, and it did, they were kind of out of luck. And then right. they, eventually they extended some more money. But but yeah, so it still happens. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. And then that was something good that came out of the recent protests 
that everybody was kind of posting all the black owned businesses in Atlanta. You know, we were all kind of trying to go out of our way to support those businesses. But then it's like, but we should always be supporting those businesses. They shouldn't have to try to work harder. But unfortunately, even in 2020, they still are. So let's get to the housing projects. How did this happen? How did these like Cabrini Green become what it became? So housing projects started for middle income white people. There were some projects that were built for black people too, but mainly they were built for white people. They were still segregated. And, but it's one of those things too, like apparently even back then, the fact that the federal government was building some homes for black people, they were patting themselves on the back, you know? Like, look how nice we are. So when they built these projects, most of the white-only buildings were mostly empty, and the African-American buildings, there's a waiting list for them. And this was because the white families could get those FHA loans and get into houses. So at some point, they had to start letting the, the blacks be in both. Right. They didn't segregate them anymore. They didn't need all that space for the white people because they were right. not needing that space. There was also like the government, Chris, the government was releasing propaganda saying that if white people stayed away from black people, then there wouldn't be any racial strife, that this is good for America. It's like we expect black Americans or people in poverty who are the majority black Americans, again, because of these processes that we put in place decades and centuries ago to pull themselves up to get themselves out of out of this themselves you know where we have never had that issue we were our our, we pretend we had our parents had a house yeah and they had and their their parents had a house well i was was thinking about like the rioting which again was a small portion of the protests but then again like people are fucking angry right and it's easier for white people to put themselves in the shoes of like the people on The Walking Dead and they're surviving. And I mean, I might do the same thing. It's easier for us to think of like a post-apocalyptic zombie world than it is to actually think about what it might be like to be a black American. And it just makes me very angry anyway. But no, that's, that's a good point. Like we we always pretend that uh, and we mean white people that we're. Uh, we put ourselves in these fanciful situations and like what would we do and then every day these actual situations are faced by real people on the ground right and they actually do something or like what are you doing right. <laughs> calm down right <laughs> stop stop acting out right know? they can't kneel they can't yeah. dance the right way they can't they can't just peacefully protest they can't angrily protest i saw trevor noah saying that like when they were trying to end apartheid he's like it took the point of the people he said that there was rioting there was car bombs it's like there was nothing else they could do they felt like all we can do to get attention is this is will get us attention you know it yeah. gets to that I mean, point it gets to the point what is protest if not upsetting is the whole point of it it's supposed to be upsetting right and i mean even in sort of what you consider white culture streaming what was the boston tea party that was right. that was a fucking riot right we dumped property in the river right and we you know we uh memorialized that i mean think about all the instances of the white history of that well, I mean, I guess it shouldn't have to be in the first place, but the whole idea of it is to upset people, right. to get attention. It's never going to, I mean, people put a lot of stock in this whole idea of like a peaceful, nonviolence protest, and, and, and sure, but even Martin Luther King didn't necessarily say that that was sort of like the bright line, you know? People sort of forget that he was actually a little bit more of an agitator than they give him credit for. Yeah. It, it wasn't all nonviolent, so to speak, even... 
his own. I mean, the whole Rosa Parks thing was. I mean, I'm talking about violence now, but that was a, that was a coordinated effort that right. took a lot of effort, a lot of. Uh, yeah, people logistics. think it was just a simple day on the bus. Yeah, no. it wasn't this like passive act. Like uh, yeah. it was upsetting, and that's what. Uh, and that's not to say that these, you know, that people that are, you know, maybe busting up shops and, you know, hitting reporters and hill bricks, you know, that's not good. We, no, I <laughs> no, we, we recognize uh, that. But, but uh, the anger that that comes from, you have to at least sort of acknowledge it because otherwise it's going to just keep happening. And I mean, I guess that's the whole point of the Black Lives Matter. Right. And then people rebuttal is all lives matter. It's like, yes, all lives matter. But there are some lives that are in danger, and we're ignoring it. Yeah, I mean, and all if you're born into poverty and you're white, it, it is going to be just as hard. But it's but you're not judged because of the color of your skin, which makes things even harder. Yeah, someone this made me so mad the other day, and it, it got taken down. But someone at the front of this neighborhood, which I live in a predominantly white neighborhood, shocker. Um, but there are a few black families you know, in the neighborhood, so I imagine this would upset them. It upset me. But someone put it in front of the neighborhood when we exit onto the little main little highway here in Alabama, uh, a sign that said, uh, it was supposed to be a COVID-19 sort of reminder sign. So it said, remember, wash your hands. Remember, you know, this epidemic is not over. I'm like, great, that's actually true. Uh-huh. And then Obama said, all lives matter. And I just thought, I mean, they, they went out of the way to make that last point. Right. As like a, and this, this was after the, the protest started. Mm-hmm. It's maybe two weeks into it. And so they, it's like they went out of their way to make that point just to st- as if like it's like as if like one can't exist without the other. Yes, we can be concerned about the the epidemic and want to social distance, right. and we can also be absolutely infuriated when people are being murdered in the streets by the state. Yes. Um, so it's all a lot, but we have to worry about all of it. And it infuriates me when people dismiss it mm-hmm. as you know people having a chip on the shoulder or complaining you know just oh this again right. i'm so sick of hearing about this right. really you're sick of hearing about right. it <laughs> uh, so anyway soapbox down <laughs> yes oh goodness all right so let's get into a little bit of the history of the cabrini green grounds and then we'll finally get into our true crime sure in Candyman, they say that Candyman was murdered on the cabrini green grounds that's why he haunts it mm-hmm. so the grounds of Cabrini Green had the nickname Little Hell in the 1860s. It has always been kind of a place of, of violence. So the Irish and Italian Chicago gangs actually rose out of this area. Crime and murder happened every day where the people lived. They knew not to tell the cops. There was a murder corner. And in 1942, the city decided to tear down the poorly built homes and build the Cabrini Green apartments. Most of the former residents in the area couldn't get an apartment there because they were doing um, screenings for the new tenants. So if you had a criminal background or if you had low income, then you couldn't get an apartment. Most of the residents were white and about 25% were black. So in this case, this one was integrated. Uh, So this was built in 1942. Then World War II happened. During World War II, obviously, we've heard of the women who got jobs, but also black Americans got more jobs. Then after the war, we hear about the women who lost their jobs, but they just went back to being... Homemakers. Yeah. But we don't really hear about all the black Americans that lost their jobs after the war. So uh, thousands of black Americans lost their jobs, and some of them had to resort to illegal activities. And so this kind of started in that Cabrini Green area, even back after the war. 
so black gangs were formed and they started fighting with the Italian gangs. But in even Cab- in Cabrini Green. So the Cabrini Green building, the tower was built, and that is where the African American lives. But then the rest of the area was still Little Italy. Oh. And so. Oh, so Cabrini is like Italian kind of. Well, Cabrini is actually a nurse or a saint or something. Oh. So, so it. I mean, it sounds like it's Catholic, right? It just sounds like an Italian name. Yeah. So then in the 50s and 60s, the government started what they called urban renewal, which is essentially moving black families out of their neighborhoods, displacing them, and starting new construction for white families to move in. But so back at the Cabrini Green areas, in 1962, the last of Little Italy was demolished, and the towers, the new towers went up, so now Cabrini Green was built. If you look at Candyman, you see when they do an overview of it, like it's like cracked, you know, just barren yeah, I was uh, thinking basketball I, I, courts. Well, I guess that's also the point of that opening scene is to show, if you're aware of it, the sort of the uh, the divisions between Chicago, I suppose. Yes. And that long opening yes. shot of the, So that's kind of interesting. You maybe not, I mean, I wouldn't be aware of that otherwise, I guess, mm-hmm. without knowing the history, but... If you but, do, I guess but it's like when you added. see it in the movie, you see that it's just barren. The grass is not really there anymore. But apparently, at this time, it still was up, kept up by the city. Uh, there's there were some people in the documentary I watched who were saying like they remember after the war, it was actually still a nice place to live. There was green grass. There was still you know violence, but it wasn't anything that was worse than the city. But then throughout the 60s and 70s, there was an increase in violence and drug use. Uh, they, this is when they started with the snipers on the roof. The the gang leaders would sniper at the cops. It made it hard for the cops to come into Cabrini Green. And at some point, the cops just kind of stopped coming, which you can't, you can't do that. Especially for a housing project that is supposed to be taken care of by the city. Yeah. This isn't like when we lived in that shitty apartment in Birmingham and we had a shitty landlord who wouldn't come and fix anything. This is the city that built these and said, we'll take care of it. You guys live here. And then one of the standoffs with the snipers, um, a little boy named Jonas Edwards got shot and killed. So by the 1970s, the tenants were not being screened anymore. There was no background checks. People just kept moving in and no one kept up with rent. So the rent fell behind and the city kind of blamed it on the people. And they're like, well, we are not getting the rent, so we're not going to keep up with your buildings anymore and then it falls into disrepair like we had seen on Candyman, and that's essentially what it looked like i mean lights would be out elevators wouldn't work at one point like the trash chute was clogged all the way up to the 15th floor um the grounds weren't taken care of no there's no grass you know remember that there a third of the tenants here are children they have a little bit of playground equipment but they live in this dangerous area where they, their parents don't even want them outside. Gang fights were common. There were rapes and murders. The cops just claimed that they couldn't control it. So they let the gang members walk around carrying guns and Uzis. They would just shoot their guns off out in the middle of the air. On New Year's Eve, they would even block off the area because they just knew it was going to be crazy. They didn't do anything about it. But there were thousands of residents who were like, like in the movie, were Anne-Marie. They were trying to raise their families. I think I had said before, 80% of the families were being raised by women. It's older people. It's all these vulnerable vulnerable people making hardly any money, living in these terrible conditions, being run by gangs because the city decided they didn't want to take care of it anymore. 
1997, Chicago decided they wanted to tear the towers down because they were on such valuable property. Because, as we said, they're right next to the Gold Coast, which is one of the richer neighborhoods of Chicago. What year did you say that was? 97. The residents were like, okay, but if you tear these down, we can't live in these new places. We can't afford them. We know what you're doing. Like, I, they showed town meetings and the people getting heated about it. And it, this is just, I'll put the link on our show notes of this little documentary. They want a better place to live, but they don't, but they're moving them out into the suburbs. On the assumption that they can afford to live there. Yeah. Yeah. They give them a voucher. And they tell them, but also these people, a lot of these people live in, they work in the city. They don't have cars. So they're moving further away where they have to leave their job. Okay. So that's kind of the history. So just so you have a better idea of why Cabrini Green. No, I mean, that's that's fascinating. The way it did. You know, I'm sure people are just like, well, they're just bad people that live there. You don't go there. But it's like, they were failed. Yeah, if anything, I, I assume there was just thought that the, the as presented, Candyman was like worse than it was. But it sounds like it, it was. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying right. to live there all day long. So now I'm going to tell you about the true crime. Okay. Okay. So this story is about Ruthie Mae McCoy. This is in a different Chicago Housing Authority project named. They call it ABLA. Maybe they call it ABLA. And she lived in the building called Grace Abbott, one of 15 buildings in this particular complex. It's similar to Cabrini Green. Nothing worked. It was, you know, a place where drug addicts came. And also because a lot of these places were empty. So drug addicts were more likely to go there and find a place to squat, right? There were dark hallways. They they said like in some areas, like the breezeways had no windows or no grates. So it was just like pitch black because all the lights would be out. The violence was actually worse than Cabrini Green, according and all the violence that happened in Grace Abbott was twice as high as what happened in the main city. This is just in this one area. The thing about Grace Abbott or like the Abla complex was that it was like a little island. You couldn't drive through it. So if the police needed to be called, it wasn't easy to get to. So in Cabrini Green, you could at least drive right to it. So Ruthie was 52 and she suffered from some mental illness. She was paranoid and often talked to herself. So on April 22nd, 1987, she was dropped back off at her apartment from the outpatient psychiatric center of Mount Sinai. At 8.45 that night, she called the police and said, and this is transcript from her 911 call. She said, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know. The dispatcher says, what are they doing, ma'am? McCoy's answer was not, you couldn't really hear it. And then, so the dispatcher says, they want to break in? And she says, yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. Dispatcher, from where? And she says, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach, can reach my bathroom. They want to come through the bathroom. All right, ma'am, what's your address? 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. Dispatcher says, 1109? All right, what's your name, ma'am? Ruth McCoy, all right, I'll send you the police. This is 8.45, she calls. At 9.02, another neighbor calls the police to report gunshots from Ruthie's apartment. At 9.04, another neighbor calls about the gunshots. The police finally come over, and no one answers the door. They call her phone, they hear it ringing inside. They try to check with neighbors, but they claim that either the apartments were empty, or the neighbors claim they didn't hear anything. So they leave. They don't open the door. 
The next night, a friend calls the police and says, Ruthie May stops by my apartment every day. She didn't come by today. Can you guys come back and check on her? The police come back. They knock. They leave. They say they can't break the door down. They don't want to get sued. Finally, the next night, that same neighbor makes the janitor drill the door open. Oh, and also during this whole, they they asked the janitor for a key. He couldn't find the right key. They didn't have the right key to her apartment. So they just left it. Her friend comes in, finds Ruthie May. She had been shot four times. Her apartment ransacked. She had bled out. And according to the coroner, if she had been taken to a hospital, she could have survived. But murders were common in the Grace Abbott building. Ruthie was one of three murders just that April. But as the police finally come in and investigate, they realize, they kind of put it all together, and they realize that her murderers had entered through the medicine cabinet. And it's the same as they describe in Candyman. They put the medicine cabinets back to back so you could remove one and then knock the other one out. They did describe it more like there was lots of pipes and stuff in there. It wasn't like a clear shot. That adds like so much more resonance to the movie, though, because I had no idea that was real. Yeah. And so so you had to squeeze through a little bit. It wasn't quite as easy as it was in there, but apparently it was like you remove six screws, take your medicine cabinet out, knock the other one out. It's terrifying. The fact that that's even a thing you would ever have to worry about. Yeah. Well, what's crazy, too, is that this these... Because also, I never, I'm sorry, I don't, no, that, I had not thought about the, that also kind of plays off the whole mirror. urban legend it, itself. <gasps> yes, it did come through the mirror. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a deep, deep movie, isn't it? It is. Okay, good. A crazy Because that thing. shows like where the, the urban legend would come from. Well, yeah, well, 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 I don't it, know. Ruthie Jean, Ruthie Jean's apartment looked like it had, was about 500 years old. So I don't know when that murder <laughs> happened. <laughs> It's lair. (laughs) (laughs) One of the scarier things about this is that people have been reporting these medicine cabinet break-ins for the last year and a half. I'm sorry. I'm blown away by that revelation because that completely undermines even the urban legend itself. Yeah. Like that's kind of where maybe, and I'm sure this doesn't line up exactly, but that's kind of where it comes from somehow. Right. Oh, I need to preface this by saying that I got this 99% of all this information from an article by Steve Borgia from 1997. It was over 8,000 word article. It was quite an investigative piece. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. And he wrote a follow-up, which well, I so also So this is used. the 80s. So what, this is like in a magazine or something you publishes or a newspaper? Yes. Yeah. Yes. After Candyman came out, then he addressed Candyman and what he thought about it. And that's like what I said. He had met with John Malkovich about it. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think about the movie? He didn't like it. <laughs> I'm sure that he thought, like, what is happening? <laughs> Bees? <laughs> and, he, you know, he seemed like to take himself very seriously. Right, yeah. and, but, I mean, he was, a, he was kind of like the only person investigating this. Like, this story did not come out. In 1987, he went into Cabrini Green just like Helen did. He went into Ruthie Jean's apartment. You know, he saw all this firsthand, too. What he did was pretty revolutionary, probably, for the time. So was the point of his uh, article, I guess, just exposing all the crime and horror within this community? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also, I think... Like, it wasn't just about the murder, because he said it was 8,000 words. So it was, I guess, about the whole... It was a lot, yeah. But he also dove really deep into Ruthie May's life, you know, which is nice. You just don't want to hear the urban legend about how someone got murdered through the medicine cabinet. He really goes into her life. And then the second article he wrote, he really got into the people in Cabrini Green 
you know, the people who were accused of her murder. But the real Ruthie, again, she wasn't at Cabrini Green. She was at Right. She was at this other place, which okay. was similar. It was on the south side. I'm not sure how far it was from Cabrini Green, right. but it was a very similar okay. area. So Ruthie had been diagnosed with some sense, some symptoms of schizophrenia, but was receiving treatment. Grace Abbott, she was known as Miss May. She carried a stick and would swing it at the young people that bothered her. Uh, she didn't like them. Who does? Well, Grace Abbott was run by a gang called the Paymasters. The what? The Paymasters. Their slogan was, we got what you want, we got what you need. And they would go around like chanting this. They, they wore a lot of fancy clothes and had boom boxes and they were selling drugs. And so, like I said, the bathroom mirror break-in started in 86, a year before her murder. Some residents would secure their couch in front of the bathroom door. They would tie a rope around the door knob. So when they went to bed, some people would have their kids have to go to the bathroom in a bucket oh. in the night because they were afraid. A lot of the apartments were vacant, so it was easier for people to break in to other apartments. So if your apartment backed up to a vacant apartment, that made it even more scary. So Ruthie recently had been approved for government assistance due to her health issues. She was taking GED classes. She was getting more stable meds. And so the police thought that maybe because maybe the residents had known she was getting a little bit more money, she bought a new winter coat and she had been talking about how she was going to move out of the Grace Abbott complex. So, you know, maybe people thought she had money hidden. There were two arrests made. One was Edward Turner, age 19, and John Hondras. They're both charged with the murder of Ruthie. Ruthie's TV and chair were found in possession of them. Steve Borgia does an entire article just on the trial, which is very interesting too. But Turner and Hondras were both found not guilty. Turner went up against a jury and was actually found not guilty. And Hondras just went up against the judge and the judge acquitted it based on there wasn't enough evidence. Um, actually, the judge in that trial put more of the blame on the Chicago police for not breaking down the door. And one, helping Ruthie, she might have survived, but also breaking in right away, he could have. they could have either caught the killers or found more evidence at the time if they had investigated immediately. Right. I mean, you can't just make public housing and then when it gets out of your hands, abandon just it. abandon it. Yeah. And then blame the people that live there. Ruthie's daughter, Verita, sued the city, but I don't know what happened. I mean, that seems like that's something that it's unsafe. And and the people knew about it from a year and a half before the murder, and nothing happened. And then even after this, they the city was supposed to come and either secure the medicine cabinets or do something, and not, they never did anything. Yeah, I mean, I will say it's very hard to sue a city. A lot of times... Well, he, she wanted to sue the... CHA, the Chicago Housing Administration, for doing that, but, oh, okay. or, th- or, or authority. But I mean, I'm not sure, but a lot of times entities like that are immune from liability, mm. or they're capped at a certain amount, so there's like no point to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be why it just didn't ever went anywhere. The last Cabrini Green Tower was torn down in 2011, and now it's built these, these single-family homes. Are the single-family homes like uh, 
for um, low-income people, or are they just... They're, they seem kind of average. They, the, the ones that they showed on the documentary seem like there was an apartment above and one below, but it's much different than stacking, you know, 15 stacks of people on top of each other. And so some of the people were supposed to get, I think they said 10 families got a, a new apartment in the new area and everybody else was moved out. We're talking about thousands of people, mm. you know, and people think that, oh, yeah, that's good. Tear down those projects. But the people that live there are like, but we got nowhere else to go. And all of our kids and our grandkids and our friends are here. You know, they still, they showed them having like community parties, you know, and even with the crime, that again, that was just a small percentage of the people that lived there. There was another interesting video I watched where the mayor, they had a white mayor who she actually moved into Cabrini Green for like three weeks to try to make things better. But then she, then she moved out and left. And there was one video of a news report of the mayor there at Easter. And they had set up like a Ferris wheel and they were like, enjoy the egg hunt. And people were protesting and they're out there saying, we don't need eggs, we need jobs. Then there was even like a, an instance where a black man was arrested and there was people yelling, what are you arresting him for? He didn't do anything. And it was just like, it just, it was like, this is 1989 or something that this, and it was like no different than to what's happening today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, so let's have a drink to Ruthie May. Yes. You drank all your drink. There's a little bit left. Okay. Probably go check our medicine cabinets. And if you want some more information about you know, that stuff I've talked about. Again, check out The Color of Law. All right. Well, so that's it. Well, that was uh, excellent research. And um, most of that I had no idea about. So good job as always. Thank but you. I feel like you did an even deeper dive than usual. So I did. I Well, I felt I felt passionate about it. Like, yeah. I just felt like this is... Well, it's a worthy subject. And All it's right. uh, I mean, for this movie, you have to kind of... There's, there's just so much going on, um, which only gets better the last few times I've watched it. I, I'm really impressed by it. This may be one of my favorite ones we've done. Oh, that is a... Bold statement. I like it. I mean, it has a little bit more to say than say, I mean, I don't want to say Pet Cemetery because <laughs> I, I argue that would have a lot to say, but I'm sure there's something out there that we've done that's a little bit silly. Oh, yeah. So, and Candyman is still on Netflix. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds good. All right. Well, thank you. Hey, good night. Bye. Hey. I just listened to the last episode of Sometimes That Is Better, and I have thoughts. Really? That is amazing because I just listened to our Child's Play 3 episode, <laughs> and boy, did we get some things wrong. So how do I tell us? How do we get in touch with us? I think the most fun way is to follow us on Instagram okay. at Sometimes Dead Podcast. At Sometimes Dead Podcast. Slide into our DMs, comment on our photos. What about Twitter? Well, you can follow us on Twitter at Sometimes Dead 4. And Twitter is fun because we like to tag all these famous people who will never see it, but it's fun to think that we can connect with them. Uh, we've gotten a few likes from famous people. That's um, true. Mary Lambert. Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. That's probably about it. The guy that uh, does a lot of the Twin Peaks uh, fandom, he, he liked us. Good, good. Also, another fun way is to, we have a Facebook group called Sometimes Groups Are Better. Right. In lieu of doing all that, you can always rate, subscribe, and review. Well, do that first. Rate and review on iTunes because that is the number one thing to do, apparently. It really helps us move up in the ratings and then other people see us. And then we increase the community and just, it's beautiful. Excellent. We'll do that first. Okay. Well, sounds good. Now, uh, let's go watch Child's Play 4. <laughs> right. All right.